0: This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post...
0: It's Robert Samuels from The Washington
2: Post.
1: Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahi Azadi with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 10th. Today, why fires are raging everywhere at once, how the government is handling Russian threats to the election, and a controversy around Mulan.
3: So for the past few days in San Francisco and the Greater Bay Area, we've been going through a cycle of smoky days, days where you can't go outside, brief windows where you can go out and get a breath of fresh air, usually at the beach. And then everybody woke up and it was much, much different. It was orange. It looked like Mars. It was dark. It was depressing.
1: That's Heather Kelly. She's a reporter for The Post based in San Francisco.
3: We're in the middle of this record-setting wildfire season, and it's actually just the beginning of wildfire season. There are fires above, below, and to the east of San Francisco. They're up in Oregon and Washington. A lot of it started when there was a lightning storm about two weeks ago, and it's just been nonstop since. It doesn't smell as much like smoke as it has before. A lot of the smoke is high enough above the city that you're not really inhaling too much of it, and the air quality sensors say it's pretty decent outside. But as soon as you go outside of your door... You'll notice it's almost snowing and it's little pieces of ash sort of drifting down from the sky, landing on all the surfaces, which really adds to the surreal quiet quality of of the sort of doomsday coloring. Usually when you can smell smoke in San Francisco, you know exactly which fire it's coming from. But at this point, there is no place there isn't a fire or no place there isn't smoke. And it's just blanketing the entire coast, especially in the north and we're not you know sure exactly when it's going to stop or if the fires will keep starting and being put out you know one of the interesting things about this all happening at once is is just the overlapping the pandemic, the heat wave, the lightning storms, <laughs> the fires, the smoke, it, it's just sort of hammering home the reality of climate change in a way that past years really haven't uh, for all of California and some other states as well. And I think that's, that's really what's at top of mind for most people here is that, you know, the effects of climate change are immediate and they're happening and they're not theoretical. They're not things going up a degree every year. And it's creating sort of a sense of panic and urgency among people in California.
2: The extent of the fires that we're seeing right now is something that's very difficult to imagine. It is the entire distance, essentially, from the U.S. border with Canada in Washington state to the U.S. border with Mexico in Southern California. That entire expanse is affected to some extent. I'm Andrew Friedman. I'm the deputy weather editor at The Washington Post. The fires that we're seeing uh, have some similarities. They are distinct fires in many of these places. They are all, however, having exhibited what's known as extreme fire behavior, which is when a fire moves incredibly rapidly, when it has fire-associated thunderstorm with it. It kind of manufactures its own weather. We had one fire that moved a distance of 25 miles in less than 24 hours. Mm. So we're seeing multiple, large, expansive, rapidly growing fires.
1: I think a lot of us have seen photos coming from the West Coast of what it's like there right now. Images that look like they're out of Blade Runner or some apocalyptic scene where the sky is red and everything is dark and creepy. What is it like for people who are living through this right now?
2: I think that it is absolutely surreal. The people that I have talked to have said that, you know, bizarre things like the birds failed to wake up in San Francisco yesterday. One person that we heard from is Ken Kirkland.
0: I am the owner of the Woolly Egg Ranch in uh, Sausalito, California. Um, We have 500 chickens, 20 ducks, a couple alpacas, some sheep, a bunch of barn cats. Basically, it's a family farm.
2: He had had this eerie experience where their egg production was suddenly way down because of the lack of sun on uh, Wednesday in particular.
0: We've had fires and we've smelt smoke at the ranch for basically the last three weeks. Uh, The last two days, however, the sky has been very strange. It's probably something like what the dinosaurs were looking at after the meteor hit. Uh, It was all orange. And then the animals, very subdued right now. Normally, when we go to open, first thing you hear is the roosters. Because they start moving around, making noise about a half hour before sunrise. And this morning was absolutely silent. 500 birds makes quite a bit of noise. And today, it was quiet pretty much the whole day. The sheep didn't cry to get fed. The chickens aren't squawking at all. There's no roosters making any sound right now either. So it's it's eerie it's so quiet on a farm.
2: Uh, Street lights stayed on. There were very weak winds over the San Francisco Bay Area uh, aloft. So that smoke just kind of accumulated to to the point where it was absorbing and rescattering all the incoming solar radiation.
0: The the thing is, is last week we had little bits of the white ash rain. Um, But like the last two days, it's been this gray because we get like right now it feels wet. It's like fog, real thick San Francisco fog. You can hear the foghorns out, out at the ocean, but it's got stuff in it. It's this nasty black-gray stuff, which I'm assuming is just all ash and particulates from the fires.
2: At least on Wednesday, uh, there wasn't a section of the state that was really unaffected by the smoke Mm. and by an air quality alert of some sort.
1: But then when it comes to people whose lives are actually in danger because they are so close to these fires, how many people have been affected by that? How many people have evacuated? How many homes have been destroyed so far?
2: Yeah. So right now, uh, we know that the toll is going to rise through the thousands in terms of structures destroyed. Uh, We know at least a 1,000 homes have been lost in uh, one town in Oregon. Lives, the toll, we don't know yet. Uh, We're at uh, about seven right now, and that's going to rise. Unfortunately, throughout the day, the governor of Oregon essentially came out and prepared her state for bad news.
1: Multiple smaller fires continue to erupt across the state adding to this crisis and unfortunately we are not getting any relief from the weather conditions
2: she said that she expected this to be the deadliest and most destructive wildfire event in state history and she said you know get ready to brace yourself for what's coming they have found people who died trying to escape the flames in a couple of instances in California, Oregon, and Washington. So really, we don't know yet what the full impacts are. We do know that tens of thousands of people had to flee with very short notice. And in the middle of the COVID you know, outbreaks, this is not something that you would like to do is flee on short notice, not knowing exactly where you're going.
4: Uh, it just pretty much escalated extremely quickly. We also heard from Dylan Golden. I live in Ashland, Oregon, but right now I'm in Mount Shasta in California.
2: He was evacuating from one of the fires in Oregon.
4: Uh, I was out running errands in Medford, uh, which is like three towns up from Ashland. When it started, I just got like a push notification on my phone uh, and then then in- emergency. Pretty much immediately after that, when we started going back down, we could see like this giant plume of smoke that pretty much came from nowhere. I tried the main highway and then right as we got to the entrance, police and city workers shut it down and they diverted us off to a side highway and kind of the same thing happened there. Right as we got there, they shut it off, uh, diverted us back to the back streets through all the farmland. And then as we were winding through that, you could just see people standing in front of their houses and their yards, just staring at the smoke. Um, and then eventually everyone in front of me that was driving just pulled off to the side. You could see flame just on one side of the road and then nothing on the other, just from all of the smoke. And then I looked down, I look back up and not even like two seconds later, both sides of the road were on fire. Thankfully, I had my roommate with me, and she just called her husband, uh, who was able to pull up Google Maps and route us through everything. Uh, But I was just at the steering wheel trying to not break down and have a panic attack. (laughs) Uh, And we were basically just telling each other, hey, come down. We just need to get through this, and then we can freak out later.
1: It feels like all these... Fires have sprung up at one time, and you said that they're all moving and growing pretty quickly. What is causing this to happen all at once?
2: The simultaneous fires. This is something that's really unprecedented that, that fire specialists have not seen. Uh, we do not have historical instances of massive, fast-moving fires burning at the same time across three gigantic states. And really, you have to look at a heat wave, pre-existing dryness, and the long-term effects of climate change to understand why this is occurring. Climate change is a threat amplifier. It doesn't, like, spark an individual blaze, but it does cause it to be larger than it might otherwise be you're getting a greater chance of extreme fire days, which means very hot, very dry, and uh, very strong winds all occurring at the same time. So all of the conditions lined up perfectly. All you really needed was a spark. And when the winds are so strong, howling 50 to 60 miles an hour, and the air is so dry, and the vegetation is so dry, mm-hmm then you're going to get that to spread so easily beyond our control.
1: How does that affect the ability to respond to these fires for firefighters and for local and state governments? If they're dealing with this crisis in so many different places at one time, it must make things much more complicated.
2: Yeah, it does make things more complicated for first responders and for government officials to figure out how to tackle this crisis. It has not been a matter of containing these fires so far more than it has getting people out. You know, the California Air National Guard did something that a lot of people hadn't heard of before, which is they started flying helicopters in to rescue trapped individuals in forested areas, not necessarily because the fire was advancing on them so quickly, but because their evacuation routes were cut off and the fire was nearby they had to land using night vision equipment because the smoke was so thick. They rescued hundreds of people that way. Officials are really having to kind of back off and make sure that they're trying to focus on defending homes, defending uh, vital communities, and defending populations rather than trying to contain these fires, at least so far. They'll be able to get more inroads against them make more progress in fighting them when the weather conditions improve uh, starting at the end of today, right on through the weekend and into next week, hopefully.
1: Do you feel like what we're seeing is the beginning of a new era in terms of what it's like to live with and deal with these fires? where these kinds of extraordinary tactics to be able to rescue people and to be able to manage the fire now, that those will become a normal part of life in the future?
2: You know, I think people in California in particular are aware that the fire season now runs year round and that the old rules no longer apply to their climate. Some of that has to do with land use practices and firefighting practices over history. It's not because they haven't raked the leaves, as the president likes to say. However, you know climate change is ratcheting up the risks. And if you look at future projections, more seasons like this are, are possible. What we're seeing is a likelihood of more compound events. It used to be that just one part of California might be having a fire crisis, Southern California, say. And you could direct all assets that way. This time, it was northern and southern California at the same time, especially northern. And it was Oregon, and it was Washington. So where do the national assets go? Where do the fire tankers go? Um, Where do the so-called hotshot crews that actually parachute into fire zones uh, to fight them, where do they go? We are running out of ways already to say something is unprecedented or we're in uncharted territory. I, as a writer, am reusing those phrases over and over and over again. Hmm. You know, it says something that we're seeing these events again and again. And climate change, climate researchers will tell you, this is going to continue and it's gonna get worse before it gets better.
1: Andrew Friedman covers extreme weather and climate for the Post.
5: What we reported is that a senior official at the Homeland Security Department has filed a whistleblower complaint in which he alleges a ongoing series of what he calls abusive power uh, and authority by top officials at the department including the secretary and the number 2 at the department I am Shane Harris and I cover intelligence and national security for the Washington Post
1: So the person who's at the center of this whistleblower complaint, Brian Murphy, remind me who exactly is this guy?
5: So Brian Murphy is a former FBI agent who until recently ran the intelligence office at DHS. He was removed from that post following reports that we broke that his office was compiling intelligence reports on tweets by journalists who were covering the protests. And this sparked outrage from both political (laughs) ends of the spectrum. And he was removed by the secretary of the department over this Now, Murphy's allegations have raised a lot of concerns among people who know him and who have worked with him, who say these are valid, legitimate things to worry about. But Murphy is a flawed messenger. He has a long history of being as they describe it, hot-headed, going his own way, defying his boss's instructions, a kind of self-righteous streak is how they describe it. There have been people who say that the morale in his office has been very low, that he's a poor manager. And he was essentially fired <laughs> over the work that his office was doing that was arguably inappropriate. So, I think that you have to take that into account when you read this document that you could fairly read as score settling potentially in some way. That he has an ax to grind. Right, that he has an ax to grind. That doesn't mean his claims can't be verified. They are so specific. He brought receipts, essentially, that an investigator will be able to go verify whether these are well-founded or whether they're off base. But he's aired these allegations. They've been made public. He's taking the fight public. He has a lawyer. So you got to think about his motive. But at the same time, he's laid the facts out there and they can be verified.
1: When he says abusive power, what does that
5: mean? What he says is that these officials have systematically, on many occasions, tried to put their thumb on the scale and pressure his intelligence office to write reports that don't actually comport with the facts and to do that in order to politically assist President Trump, Hmm. to assist him with countering narratives that Russia is trying to interfere in the election. This official, Brian Murphy, alleges that he was pressure to inflate the number of suspected terrorists crossing the border with Mexico in order to help bolster the president's case to build a border wall with Mexico. And he also says that during the recent protests, particularly in Portland, Oregon, over police violence and racial injustice, that he was told to essentially amp up the language about Antifa and anti-fascist far-left groups and their presence Mm in these protests in a way that he thought did not comport with reality, but of course would have handed President Trump a potentially useful talking point as he tries to push responsibility for those protests onto the far left and to link, importantly, Joe Biden to such groups. And according to what this whistleblower Brian
1: Murphy is saying, when it was communicated to him that he was supposed to either obscure the things that his intelligence department was finding or to kind of amp up the language about certain things, how explicit was it that, you know, you need to do this because it's going to make the president look better?
5: In one case, he was actually told, he says, by acting secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, to stop compiling reports about Russian election interference because, quote, it would make the president look bad. Mm. So he was explicitly told there, he says, that these reports are unflattering to the president. And we don't want to do them. In another instance, he says that he was also told to essentially back off reporting on Russia at the direction of Robert O'Brien, the White House National Security Council, something O'Brien has denied to us. So he says that there is a explicit link to the president in some cases. And in others, I think it was, as he describes it, just subtler. It was understood that the president was out there talking, for instance, about Antifa and the far left as being behind all of the protests. And at the same time, he's being told to modify the language in intelligence reports about those protests.
1: And is there an indication that this was even more widespread than just things that were told to this? one guy, Brian Murphy, in his office?
5: I think so, insofar as, you know, I've talked to other sources who are familiar with what goes on in the intelligence office, and they have told me that they've also felt pressure coming down from the top. I think it probably is, to their mind, filtering down through Brian Murphy, who is their boss, but Murphy is saying it's coming up from above him. And, you know, we've also seen instances in another agency, Uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence put out a statement recently about foreign election interference in which it talked about Russia, but also China and Iran as interfering in the elections. And this prompted rebukes from Democratic lawmakers who said, look, your statements are somehow they look like they're equating the activities of these three countries. Mm -hmm. And that by doing that, you're minimizing the far more severe and active role that Russia is playing, trying to hurt Joe Biden. China and Iran are kind of in their own categories engaged in Mm -hmm. interference, but it's qualitatively and quantitatively different. So those allegations and that characterization that the DNI's office is sort of blurring the lines in a way to dilute the importance of the Russia story, that does track with what Brian Murphy says was going on at the Homeland Security Department, where his bosses there, too, were trying to get him to downplay the Russia threat and in one instance told him to start paying more attention to China and Iran.
1: And tell me more about what we're hearing now about those threats from Russia and how they're trying to influence the election, especially when it comes to things like mail-in voting.
5: So, I guess I would put the threat from Russia kind of in two buckets one is the the propaganda bucket that is more being spread on social media and through kind of more traditional media channels so there we've got you know Russian Twitter accounts, for instance, like bots or fake accounts that are being run experts think by by people in Russia that are you know spreading disinformation, posting about divisive topics, turning people against each other, you know basically being menacing the way they were in two thousand and sixteen mm-hmm. Then there have also been documented cases of Russian media sources picking up either fake stories or stories that kind of have a kernel of truth and then blowing them out of proportion. So there was this really interesting example, for instance, of a video of a protester in Portland burning a Bible. Mm. And this kind of got picked up and went viral in American media while experts have traced it back and found that actually some of its origins were that it was being pumped up on Russian news platforms and then kind of trickling out from there to make it sound like it was a story about protesters, plural, burning lots of Bibles in Portland, when in reality it was one protester burning a Bible. So there's that amplification. The second bucket, though, is what I would think of as more direct kind of targeting and disinformation. So, there, what we've seen, and this has been documented both in our reporting at the Post and confirmed by the Director of National Intelligence, the Russians have been trying to get derogatory information and often false and misleading information about Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden and his business dealings in Ukraine into the US Congress. They've been actually building up Dossiers and information and through a intermediary, the intelligence office thinks, handing that out to Republican staffers on the Hill and in particularly one U.S. Senator Ron Johnson. Wait,
1: But I feel like this is all taking us back to the beginning of impeachment, right? That like the impeachment came from this alleged effort by the president to try to undermine Joe Biden and his son Hunter.
5: Right. This isn't deja vu. This already happened once, right? I mean, you saw Ukrainian sources with links to the Kremlin pushing this information, Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, going out and trying to collect it. There's this one Ukrainian lawmaker in particular named Andrei Derkak, who we've written about extensively at the Post and who was singled out in a public statement by the director of national intelligence office as this conduit who is spreading misinformation and derogatory information about Joe Biden. And we know from reporting that he's met with Rudy Giuliani, and we believe that he's given it to Senator Johnson. So this is an example cited by the DNI. Johnson has said he's investigating and he's going to release a report on Ukraine and Joe Biden. Now, you know, politically, whether that's going to be beneficial for him at all calling me skeptical. I mean, the impeachment seems like a lifetime ago, and it was already a very complicated story to begin with. But it's important that the DNI is pointing to that individual, this guy Dirkok in Ukraine, and saying, look, he's a conduit for information that is meant to damage Joe Biden's candidacy. And it's getting into the bloodstream, if you like, in the United States. So that's kind of another example of how the Russians are engaged in really active, aggressive measures that have a similar flavor to what they did in 2016 when they stole Democratic Party emails and leaked them in order to try to damage Hillary Clinton's campaign.
1: So going back to this whistleblower, if he is complaining that the highest levels of the government are trying to hide or exaggerate or undermine information and intelligence about what is actually going on right now. What is actually going to happen to this complaint? Is this going to change anything? Or is this just yet another person inside the government saying that they're seeing something they think is wrong that ultimately doesn't result in any consequences?
5: Yeah, it, it's a great question. I'd say, it, will it politically move the needle? Probably not. I mean, I'm, I'm firmly in the camp that thinking at this late stage in the race, nothing really is going to probably change a needle. But I think the reason that his complaint is important And has the potential to be more significant in the long term is that this is not a democratic lawmaker accusing the administration of misleading the public or withholding information or coloring information to suit a political narrative. This is a career person serving in the Homeland Security Department. He's a former FBI agent. He's worked counterterrorism cases. He, as far as we know, has no partisan dog in the fight, and he's blowing the whistle internally. But this is information that he turned over to the Department of Homeland Security's inspector general. It's filled with names, with dates, with specific actions. These are all things that investigators can pick up and go try to verify. And importantly, now it's been made public. uh, And there's a House committee that also wants to interview him. So these complaints are going to be part of the record. And they are so specific and I think are confirmed thematically by things that we've seen in other departments, by statements from the president, by actions by Republican lawmakers, But I think that this story is kind of coalescing. Now, whether it will influence anyone's opinion in the election, again, I'm doubtful, but I think it's very important for the record. As we try to assess, you know, how it is that this president and this administration have used these immensely powerful intelligence authorities and these huge government departments, you know, arguably towards political ends, which is simply... Anathema to how this is supposed to work. You're not supposed to use the intelligence community and the powers of government for the political assistance of the president. That is not what they're there to do.
1: Shane Harris covers national security for The Post. Now, one more thing about the geopolitical implications of a new Disney movie, the live-action Mulan. It's streaming in the U.S. now and is premiering in theaters in China on Friday. The new Mulan is a remake of the 1998 animated movie, which had a lot going for it. It's the story of an awkward teenage girl who becomes a hero warrior to protect her family and her homeland.
6: I've heard a
0: great deal about you, Mulan.
1: Definitely one of the more feminist and empowering Disney movies of the 90s. And at least at the time, it was seen as a big win for Asian representation in the U.S.
6: But it's important to note that Mulan in China, at least the 1998 cartoon, was a pretty big flop. With Chinese audiences, they're not particularly drawn to this westernized retelling of their ancient legend.
1: Ishan Tharoor writes about global affairs for The Post.
6: Now, decades later, Disney senses a different opportunity with its live-action Mulan. It reframes the story along pretty spectacular uh, Chinese nationalist lines that they probably assume will appeal to Chinese audiences.
5: Do you know why the phoenix sits on the right hand of the emperor? She
6: is his guardian, his protector. Disney's new live-action Mulan has been seen as problematic for a number of reasons. Some critics lament the extent to which it's been reframed as a modern Chinese nationalist drama, when the story itself is not clearly a nationalist story at all. We are under attack from northern invaders. Leader calls himself Bori Khan Fights alongside a witch. No survivors. But but more prominent in the backlash to the film are two separate issues. First, last year, the lead actress Liu Yifei, a Chinese-born actress who's done most of her work in China, came out on social media and posted comments defending Hong Kong's police in the middle of a pretty brutal crackdown on Hong Kong's pro-democracy protesters. Those comments in and of themselves uh, led to calls for boycotts of the movie. But those calls for boycotts have become even louder now, after some people have seen the film, and seen where in the end credits, Disney and Mulan's filmmakers offer special thanks to a number of political entities within China, in particular four propaganda departments, and one public security bureau in the region of Xinjiang. Now, Xinjiang is up in far western China. It's known for its breathtaking landscapes and its historic traces of the old Silk Road. But we now know it as the site of a hideous Orwellian campaign of repression launched by Beijing, which has seen perhaps as many as a million or more ethnic minority Uyghurs and others put into de facto concentration camps, which has seen reports of torture, abuse, forced sterilization of Uyghur women, and which has led to some observers outside uh, alleging that the Chinese are carrying out a de facto genocide of this ethnic minority. The fact that the film appears to have spent some time in its production in this region uh, has led to real howls of outrage and emboldened the calls for boycotts. What we're seeing in, say, the controversy over Mulan, which is, of course, the project of an American company, as well as other recent uh, incidents involving, say, uh, the NBA and its Chinese audiences is that no matter what the political leaderships say or do, the U S and China are still very tightly bound together. Their businesses and companies recognize the need for each other. Their major businesses have real uh, interests in, in speaking to audiences on the other sides of the world. And, And now we're going to see incidents like this, which perhaps in the past would never have generated the kind of friction we're seeing, now turn into political hot potatoes far more often.
1: Ishan Tharoor covers global affairs for The Post and writes the newsletter, Today's Worldview. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. To catch up on recent episodes of the podcast, go to PostReports.com, where you can find our episode archive and information about the stories on each day's show. That's at PostReports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses.